sermon text for this morning is John chapter 9. It's a passage that we read during our worship service. In this chapter of John, we read about how Jesus healed a blind man who was blind from birth. Now, last Sunday, we considered verses 1 through 3, and we focused especially on verse 3, in which Jesus explained to his disciples that this man was born blind in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. That he was blind, and his blindness was not the result of chance or a karma or the particular sins of his parents or even the man's particular sins. But God had a wise, a providential purpose in this blind man's suffering. And we see that purpose here in the glory that Christ receives as a result of this man's healing. R.C. Sproul writes that in the providence of God, this man had been born blind so that on this particular day, God's kingdom could be manifested through his healing God's purpose here was to demonstrate to all who Jesus really was. This man's tragic condition was by no means senseless. It had a divine purpose that has borne witness to Christ through all history. And this passage has been preached, we know, countless times. John has recorded it here, and many have come to faith as a result of this man's testimony and this great work of Christ in his life. We see that Christ's glory is clearly revealed through this wonderful sign. And this miracle is identified as a sign, uh, specifically in the Gospel of John, because notice how the crowds reply to his healing. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? As We've learned so far in the Gospel of John that word signs is significant because John the Evangelist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know he chose seven important things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry and he included them in his Gospel. And he tells us why he recorded these signs in particular in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says very specifically these signs are recorded here in order to reveal Jesus' glory. They are the things that Jesus did that revealed that he is in fact the Messiah sent from God. And the healing of this blind man is one of these great signs that Jesus performs. We know that one of the functions of Jesus' great signs and wonders was to prove his identity and to show how God was, in fact, working through Christ's ministry to redeem and to restore uh, creation through his obedient son, through the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself pointed to these signs as evidence of his ministry. 
uh, as the Messiah sent from God. We know that at one point in his ministry, uh, John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. Uh, you can imagine John there in, in prison, struggling with the idea of trying to reconcile why he's in prison, suffering the injustice that he's suffering, if the Messiah has actually arrived. In John's mind, when the Messiah came, he was going to start to bring justice and to start to overthrow the Romans, to bring God's justice on the earth, showing God's people God's glory. And John is sitting there in prison thinking, this is not the way I understood the work of the Messiah being. Um, and so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, are you the Messiah or not? Should we be looking for another? And Jesus responds in Matthew 11, beginning at verse 2, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' response to John is very clear. Look at the evidences. Look at what I am doing. Look at the signs, John. What I'm doing is clearly in line with all that God has promised. The dead are raised and the blind receive their sight. Even Jesus pointed to this great sign as evidence of his power and of his glory. This we know was ultimately to fulfill the promise made through Isaiah the prophet that when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. It's a promise that we read in Isaiah 35, verse 5. And so these signs revealed who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah sent from God who had come to redeem his people from their sins. And one author says that the signs Jesus performed were living sermons that explained the nature and the purpose of his redeeming work, that he came to restore what sin had destroyed. And we see this demonstrated so beautifully in the way that Jesus healed this man who was blind from birth. We note first in our passage that this blind man's physical condition, it demonstrates our spiritual condition. We learn that the man was blind from birth, not because a, of a particular sin that he or his parents committed, but because of the curse of sin that we are all born under. Sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and sin brought death and God's curse upon creation. And so the Bible presents suffering as the normal experience of everyone living on this earth between Adam's sin and uh, Christ's return. And so we see that this man's disability was a physical example of the spiritual destruction that sin brought into God's creation. Beloved ones, part of the implication of 
being born into a sinful world is that we don't have a natural spiritual perception. We're not born with the ability to understand the things of God. We are born, in fact, with thinking that is described by the Apostle Paul as futile. We are born with foolish hearts that are darkened by sin. And so this blind man physically represents what fallen humanity is like spiritually. We are born in darkness, in ignorance, in sin, without the hope of salvation. We are born spiritually blind and without Christ. Jesus said this very thing to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. He says uh, to this church, For you say that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This was a significant thing for Jesus to say through the Apostle John to this very established church in Laodicea because the city of Laodicea was a wealthy, thriving city in the Roman Empire. And history tells us that the city was damaged by an earthquake around AD 60, but the city declined disaster relief from the Roman Empire. They said, we're Laodicea. We're self-sufficient. We don't need any kind of outside help or charity from the empire. And it appears that the Christians in that city took on that same attitude. We're self-sufficient. We don't need outside help. But Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are in fact wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We see the Lord Jesus showing that without him, we are still in our sins. We remain blind to the truth of the gospel as we find it revealed in God's word. Now, the Apostle Paul writes about this spiritual blindness as a key element of Satan's rule over this world. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, speaking of unbelievers, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We cannot see Christ truly in the scriptures to the point where we can put our faith in him because we are born blind without the help of the Spirit in order to be able to put our faith in Christ. And this was the case, we know, with the religious leaders in our sermon passage who we see prided themselves on their law-keeping. They prided themselves on, on their religiosity when, in fact, their hearts were far from God. The fact that they rejected Jesus, who was sent from God, who was God, revealed their hard hearts. Notice John chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. 
the end of our sermon text, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Jesus is addressing the fact here that he has been saying since John chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. Jesus declared himself at the Feast of Tabernacles to be, as we studied, the light of the world, identifying himself with the God of the scriptures, Yahweh. But we know that many of the religious leaders, rather than repenting of their sins and and believing in Jesus as a result, they rejected him. Just as Jesus said, God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than the light, for their deeds were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. Jesus revealing there why the religious leaders opposed him, because they refused to acknowledge their sinfulness and their need of his saving grace. Loved ones, without Christ, we are spiritually blind. And Christ has come into the world to give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to embrace him by faith. The Apostle Paul explains in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, that God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Before we believed in Christ, we were in the kingdom of darkness. We were in blind unbelief. But God has rescued us from the darkness through the light of Christ. You know, I'm fascinated by continued advancements in vision correction, eyeglasses and contact lenses. And now we have all kinds of procedures like LASIK and laser procedures that can, can fix uh, vision at the microscopic level. And you know, praise God for such great advancements in technology and in medical care. But we need to also acknowledge, loved ones, that no amount of human technology or medical advancement will be able to correct the spiritual blindness that we are born with because of sin. If we are to have spiritual sight, spiritual understanding, it needs to be a work of God, a work of divine grace. See, our main problem, according to the Bible, is not an eye issue. It's a sin issue. It separates us from God and causes us to be spiritually blind. And, And through this healing miracle, the Lord Jesus revealed that he is the light of the world who has come to heal our spiritual blindness and to bring us into his kingdom of light. We read in our passage in verses 6 through 7 the way that Jesus accomplished this miracle for this man. 
He spit on the ground, we read, and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, we're not certain why Jesus used this particular method in order to bring about this healing. We do know that he healed others using similar methods in the Gospel of Mark, so it's not entirely unique. One commentator notes that the way that Jesus mixed his spit with the dirt is reminiscent of God's breath mixing with dirt of the earth in the miracle of human creation. Where, and we know that when God created Adam, he created him from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In that instance, God was creating Adam. Well, in this instance, here in John chapter 9, Christ was restoring what Adam's sin had destroyed. John Calvin explains this view, which was common, we know, among the early church fathers from the commentaries and sermons that we have of theirs. Just as a man, just as man was at first made of clay, so Christ used clay in restoring his eyes to show that he had the same power over a part of the body that the Father had exercised in creating the whole man. What a beautiful picture of Christ's power as the Son of God. Jesus then, after applying the mud to his eyes, sent the man to wash in the pool of Siloam, which reminds us about how, if you recall in the Old Testament, Elisha sent Naaman to go wash in the river Jordan to cleanse himself of the leprosy. There's a, a clear implication that what Jesus was commanding this man to do was a test of faith. You know, would this blind man believe Jesus' word? When Jesus told him to go wash in, in the pool of Siloam, see, it wasn't that uh, the pool had some kind of medicinal properties. This was, in fact, loved ones, a test of this man's faith. Jesus required the man to believe and, and to follow through on his belief. And we see that it was only after he washed that he came back seeing. So those who reject Jesus and do not believe in his word, do not obey his word, will remain in darkness. They will remain in blind unbelief. We learn from this man's obedience to Jesus' word was that when we repent and, and believe in the Lord Jesus and trust what he says, then we are brought into his kingdom of life. And so we must, loved ones, go to Jesus, the true Siloam, to be washed by his cleansing blood and to receive forgiveness of our sins and to receive life in his name. Now we learn, secondly, that this man's conversion reveals the way in which we come to faith in Christ. 
We see that after he was healed, uh, he gradually became more and more aware of who Jesus was. And, and we see that he grew firm in his faith as he experienced a lot of the opposition that the religious leaders uh, showed toward him. We read in verses 8 through 12 of our passage, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, we see from this passage that the whole community is amazed by this healing. You have to remember that they knew this man who had been blind. Some of them had grown up with him. They knew about his disability. Some of them saw him begging. We note here, because in the ancient world, a, a person like this suffering from such a severe disability was completely dependent upon the kindness of other people in order to sustain them day by day. So they knew this man, and all of a sudden, he's healed. He can see. This was such a, a dramatic miracle that some of them didn't believe that it was the same man. We see in verse 8 again, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, this is his own personal testimony, I am the man. I, I'm witness to the fact that I have been healed. In fact, their, their disbelief at what happened to him and this great miracle actually adds to the power and the glory of the sign. Their shock and awe is a testimony to the greatness and, and to the glory of what Jesus has done for this man. So what do they do? We read in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, there's no reason for us to ascribe any kind of meanness or, or malice to the fact that they brought this man to the Pharisees. We need to remember that the Pharisees were among the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and so when something extraordinary like this happened, people wanted it to be known and, and understood. In essence, they, they wanted to get some spiritual understanding about what the healing meant. But we see, loved ones, that sadly, those who were supposed to be the godly leaders were blind to the truth of Christ. They were blinded by their own sin and, and the darkness of their hearts. We see in verse 14, the first mention of the fact that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his 
eyes. The fact that Jesus healed the man in the way that he did was, was problematic to the Pharisees. They had, we know, extensive oral traditions, man-made laws about what people could and could not do on the Sabbath. These laws weren't drawn from Scripture, but they were the traditions of men that Jesus often spoke about. And by healing this man on the Sabbath, this uh, uh, Jesus broke at least three of these traditions of men, these oral laws. Healing itself, according to these oral laws, was forbidden, except in cases where a person's life itself was in danger. And secondly, uh, making mud from spit and, and dirt, you know, that involved a kind of work of, of kneading and, and mixing, which was also uh, a violation of the uh, traditions of men. And even the anointing, when Jesus put the mud on the man's eyes, even that was prohibited according to their laws. Dear loved ones, we see that in all this, all the Pharisees could focus on is how Jesus violated their man-made Sabbath rules and traditions. We read in verse 17, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Notice how the man who had been healed, how he didn't back down. He was beginning to feel the pressure, the opposition, but he remained faithful, witnessing all throughout to the truth of Christ. Well, the religious leaders were not satisfied with all the witnesses who had already testified to the truth of this miraculous healing by Jesus, and so they brought, we see, in his parents to question them. We read in verses 18 through 23, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And John gives us a little historical parenthesis here in, verses, in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be uh, Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The parents were uh, fearful of the religious leaders and the possibility of them being excommunicated over the fact that they identified 
Jesus as the Messiah. John explains in verse 22 exactly why they were uncomfortable about the, this fact of, of being excommunicated. You know, we need to remember that uh, in the ancient world, in a, in a small area like this, uh, a person was completely dependent upon family and friends and, and their small community of, of uh, people who shared their faith. You know, today, if, if someone is excommunicated from a church, uh, the attitude is often, well, I could just go to another church down the street. There's plenty to choose from. Uh, but the idea here is, is if a person was excommunicated from their community, it was, it was very serious. They lost all their support. They lost all their ties to their family and, and to their friends. And, and so the parents feared the idea of being cast out. We see, though, uh, in verse 24, that the Pharisees did not let up. They continued to apply pressure, verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Essentially, tell the truth now. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and would you not listen? What, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They excommunicated him from the synagogue, from the community, from all that the man knew and loved. We see, friends, that after this man was healed, we see this wonderful progression as he became more and more aware of who Jesus really was. And he became more and more aware of who Jesus was as he experienced the difficulties and the trials that came his way. He grew more firm in his faith even as he experienced a lot of opposition from the religious leaders. You might have noticed as we read these verses how his understanding of who Jesus was, it, it grew deeper and deeper, more profound. Notice in verse 11, when he talked to his neighbors, how did he refer to Jesus? He said, the man they called Jesus. Uh, referring to him as, well, I don't know him, but I'm sure that uh, you've heard of him. Right? The guy that they referred to as Jesus, uh, I, I really don't know much about him. And then notice in verse 17, he takes it a step further. 
now he calls Jesus a prophet, a prophet like Moses and, and Elijah, who in the Old Testament was able to do, were able to do great and wondrous things in the name of God and under the power of God. And then in verse 33, we see a further progression in his understanding, in his conviction of, of Christ. He confesses before the Pharisees that Jesus was from God. And then all of this culminates in his profound profession of faith in verse 38 as he is again confronted with the Lord Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. And we read that he worshipped him. Remember that only God is worthy of worship. And so if Jesus were only an angel or a created being of God, he would not have been worthy of worship. But the fact that this man worships Christ reveals that Jesus is God. We learn here that the more we respond in faith and obedience to Jesus, the greater and deeper will our understanding of him be loved ones. I want to ask you this morning, are you responding to the light of Christ? Are you growing in your love and your knowledge of the one whom God has sent? You know, our spiritual rebirth is a lot like our physical birth because in both instances we need to grow and and to mature. We need time to develop. And especially in our spiritual rebirth, we need time to grow and to mature in Christ. We're not born again knowing everything that we need to know about Christ, but it's something that develops over time throughout our lives, even as we experience difficulties and trials of many kinds. As we persevere through those things, through the power of God, we learn more about Christ and our conviction about who he is grows ever deeper. And so we are commanded as Christians to use the means that God has given us to grow in our understanding of Jesus. We see that this man, as he experienced pushback and trials and many difficulties, that this man was seeing more and more clearly while the eyes of the Pharisees remained clouded by sin, which only led them to greater depravity. God assures us that when we approach him in humility and faith, loved ones, he will reward us with wisdom and with understanding and with growth in grace. Well, we learn thirdly, the challenges that accompany saving faith. We see that immediately after his conversion, the spiritual warfare began. Satan and the unbelievers around this man tried everything they could to get him to deny what Jesus had done for him. He was repeatedly placed on trial. He's he's questioned and, and mocked and ultimately cast out from his community. As we noted, this would have been a serious hardship for him. This man's story, loved ones, reveals the conflict that exists between 
the light of Christ and the darkness of this world. That the world, the flesh, and the devil are at war against the things of God. Now, Richard Phillips writes that a follower of Jesus will be placed on trial. And so let us not be surprised when this happens even to us. The world rejects the truth of God's word and tr twists it to serve its sinful agendas. God's blessing in us offends a world that does not want to bend the knee to Jesus or, or to acknowledge its need of salvation. And every attempt will be made to discredit God's power in your life and in my life. Jesus cautioned his followers about this very thing in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, where he writes, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see in this passage that although coming to Christ brings joy in this life and it brings the assurance of eternal life, Jesus warns that following him will make it more difficult for us in some ways in this life. And we have to be willing to prioritize Jesus over even our earthly relationships when they come into conflict with our allegiance to Christ. The reformer John Calvin writes about this command of following Christ. Christ's meaning is that there will be no end to our warfare until we leave the world. Let it be the uninterrupted exercise of the godly that when many afflictions have run their course, they may be prepared to endure fresh afflictions, to persevere through the hardships, through the difficulties, through the things that Satan and the world and our flesh, the obstacles that all of these sources put up against our following after Christ. Because, loved ones, while the cost of following Christ can be significant, we know that the reward is ever greater and it is eternal. Because the way to eternal life is clear. As the Apostle Paul put it, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so if you have answered by believing on Jesus, then I encourage you to count your faith in Christ as your most treasured possession. Let us fix our eyes on Christ. Let us devote our lives to worshiping him and to be assured that he will carry us through this life and we will behold his glory in the next. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ through whom we have 
the forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of life everlasting. We thank you for giving us eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to cling to Christ by faith. We pray for the people in this room who don't see that yet, that you would open their eyes so that they might repent and believe in Christ. We pray for our unbelieving family members and friends that you would also open their eyes to see Christ. And Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might continue to grow in the Lord Jesus, becoming mature and steadfast in our faith as we live in this world that we see as so hostile to what we believe. Lord, in light of the opposition we face as your children, we thank you for the assurance of your sovereign care and for the ongoing intercession of Christ on behalf of his church, in whose name we pray. Amen.